Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Emily Anthes will join us to discuss Frankenstein's cat. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, for centuries we've toyed with our creature companions, breeding dogs that herd and hunt, house cats that look like tigers, and teacup pigs that fit snugly in our handbag. And Frankenstein's cat, the journalist Emily Anthes, takes us from petri dish to pet store. She explores how biotechnology is shaping the future of our furry and feathered friends. Ms. Anthes is a journalist whose articles have appeared in Wired, Discover, Psychology Today, Slate, Scientific American, The Boston Globe, and other publications. And she holds a master's degree in science writing from MIT and a bachelor's degree in the history of science and medicine from Yale, and her new book is entitled Frankenstein's Cat, Cuddling Up to Biotech's Brave New Beasts. And Ms. Anthes, we're very pleased to welcome you today on the Grok Science Show. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, certainly our pleasure. Certainly a, a great, fascinating book you've written here, Frankenstein's Cat, in which you talk about uh, sort of the emergence of biotechnology and what it's doing as, as far as creating uh, interesting new uh, organisms. So I'm curious, why did you decide to write this book? Well, it really came about at the beginning pretty organically. I just, over the course of several years, started noticing what seemed like an increasing number of stories of strange critters and creatures being created in scientific labs around the world. You know, one day I'd see a headline about a remote control cyborg beetle, and the next day it seems like there would be a story about goats that produce spider silk in their milk, and there were all these fascinating little tidbits coming out here and there, and all the stories were interesting, but as I read more and more of them, it occurred to me that nobody was really putting all the pieces together and saying that, that look at all the new ways we can change animal bodies. What does this really mean for animals? What does this mean for us? There had been a fair amount of discussion on the human side of things in terms of what genetic engineering and cloning and cyborg technology might mean for humans and whether we future would be able to reinvent ourselves, but it didn't seem like many people were looking at what it meant for the animals in which this research was first being done. So I wanted to look at that in more detail. The other component, I guess, was that when people were writing stories about some of these advances, there tended to be a lot of apocalyptic fantasizing. You know, would cloning lead to creating an army of super predators and sort of dystopian dreams like that. And so I thought there also needed to be someone who took a level-headed, clear-eyed view with these advances and tried to cut through some of the BS and see what was real, what wasn't real, and what are these 
technologies really mean and what can we honestly expect from them. So those were the goals I had. So is it your sense that the, the critics of uh, biotechnology maybe uh, swing um, the pendulum too far in one direction, whereas perhaps the scientists are a little bit too removed from the ethical implications of their work? Yeah, I think both of those things are true. Uh, I also think that, you know, I have a background in journalism, and when you're a journalist and you're covering a story, there's sort of a natural tendency to look at some of the sensational aspects of a scientific development, especially when you're talking about biotechnology, you really want to grab readers' attention, and I understand that impulse, but I think the narrative hasn't been very balanced overall in terms of looking at some real-world implications, in particular looking at some, some good things that these technologies could do for the world. I think that part of the equation has been left out as as people talk about all the risks and the dangers, which are absolutely real, and we need to have discussions about things like genetically modified food and whether it's safe to eat. Those are important conversations. But we also need to have conversations about whether genetically modified animals could do good things for the world. It seems as if uh, these issues come to the fore every every now and then. For example, the genetically modified crops. Uh, you mentioned in your book, uh, Dolly the Sheep. Um, and every now and then, people begin to have this discussion about uh, what are the um, implications for the what we're doing. And it sort of dies down. Do you think this is sort of a way of sustaining this dialogue, or where do you really think the the public is in, as far as um, really trying to come to grips with the implications of this kind of work? You know, that that's hard to say. I think that. There's probably not as much opposition as it sometimes may appear from media coverage. There are some very vocal anti-biotechnology activists in this country and in other countries, and they're very loud, and so they take up a lot of the public dialogue and a lot of the public space. But after talking to people in the course of doing research for my book, I'm convinced that a lot of people one, are not as opposed to some of these technologies as you might expect, and two, a lot of people just simply want more information. Um, I think when you actually, when scientists have done studies and surveys, a lot of people say they're not really familiar with cloning and what it means or genetically modified salmon and, and what that means. And so I think part of it is getting the story out there of when we say cloning, what are we actually doing to an animal and what are the actual effects? And when you have these sensational media stories that aren't accompanied by an equal amount of actual description of what the science is, I think it's hard to form a really nuanced and, and subtle view about these things. Um, so your, your book covers a lot of uh, different aspects of, of biotechnology. I'm, I'm curious, uh, among those, what do you think are the areas sort of surprised you as far as uh, how far the technology has gotten and sort of areas where you think we're having a discussion about what's going on? I'll, I'll take the first part of that question first, I guess. Um, one of the, the things that surprised me was looking into some of the cyborg technology that's happening, especially because certainly going into this project, I thought, that cyborgs were something that were way off in the future, that it's sort of something sexy to talk about, but we weren't going to have to deal with that for hundreds of years. But there are scientists that have already made, you know, remote-controlled beetles or remote-controlled rodents. They've put microchips in these animals' brains and wires in their backs, and they can sit you know, three meters away from these animals and steer them through obstacle courses and make them dig for 
buried scents in, in a laboratory pit. And I was surprised that we'd gotten that far. Also, that a lot of these advances in the cyborg world are already starting to trickle out to the public. And there's a whole DIY movement that sprung up around electronic modification and microchips. I spent some time out in California in a lab where researchers had gotten a lot of government funding to build these high-tech cyborg beetles that the military is interested in using. But there's also a company that for $100 will sell anyone a kit to just make their own remote-controlled cockroach at home. And it shocked me that something that's the cutting edge of scientific research is also so easily accessible to people at home. And there's sort of this, uh, the barrier between what professionals are capable of and what amateurs are capable of is really disappearing. And that, among other reasons, I think is one reason we need to start really talking through the ethics of some of these interventions. Because once these technologies escape from the lab, as, as it were. There's no telling how they'll be used and who will be using them and what for. And so as they expand to a broader population, I think we really need to start thinking through whether these technologies are things we want to use and in what scenarios. Fairly uh, surprising and interesting that technologies are already percolating out into the, the general market, mm -hmm. and somewhat disconcerting then that maybe it'll be market forces that sort of determine <laughs> whether these things are used. Right, right. And um, it's interesting that the company that sells these is called the Robo Roach, and the company that sells these actually has not sold a ton. Last time I checked, it was less than a hundred, and. It's definitely uh, what they generously call a niche product, and they acknowledge that, you know, remote-controlled cockroach is not for everyone and that it's probably not a hugely brisk seller because this idea of taking control of another creature's nervous system is something that lots of people are uncomfortable with. But there's definitely this idea out there that in the same way that previous generations of kids grew up, you know, tinkering with computers, that the next generation maybe will grow up tinkering with, with life itself. And it's both encouraging and a little bit scary at the same time, I think. Perhaps the area where this is always to the greatest concern is that of uh, genetically modifying uh, the food supply. In some ways, uh, the concern about food, at least when it comes to animals, is a little bit of a red herring. There's a lot, been a lot of discussion over whether these foods are safe to eat. Um, probably the most famous example is the one that's going through FDA approval right now, it's a genetically modified salmon that's been modified to grow to its adult size um, twice as quickly as normal. And obviously, if you're a consumer, your main question is going to be, is this safe to eat? Will this harm my health in any way? And so I understand people's preoccupation with that question, but the data on that is relatively clear that the salmon in this case are no different than conventionally grown salmon, that they pose no elevated risk to human health. And lots of studies have concluded the same thing about uh, cloned food, so cloned cattle that are used, turned into steaks and, and the like. The FDA and researchers have concluded that they're no different than conventional foods. I think the things we should be worried about with these technologies are several other issues. And one is the question of animal welfare. So how do these 
changes or interventions affect the animals themselves. And the second concern is a concern for the environment. So when it comes to fish, the real worry with these salmon is that what happens if they were to escape from where they're being kept and they make their way into the wild and would they drive natural salmon to extinction. And in this particular case, scientists have done lots of studies and they've concluded that because they don't grow any bigger than regular salmon, they grow faster but not bigger, that they're unlikely to have a negative effect on wild salmon populations. So it seems like these salmon are in the clear, but these are important questions that we're going to have to ask with each application. And there's no one answer that's going to be true all the time. Because genetic engineering is such a huge category of potential changes, and we can insert different genes in different animals in different places, each new kind of food animal we create, we're going to have to evaluate all of these questions anew. And in some cases, like the salmon, I think there's no obvious reason why they shouldn't be approved. They've gone through all the scientific review, and they've been shown to be low risk for humans and for the environment. But that may not be true of, of all of the modified foods that come forward, and there aren't going to be any shortcuts to just looking at each on a case-by-case -case basis. Talked a little bit earlier about various robotic-type interfaces with animals and perhaps even our, ourselves. How much do you think biotechnology will play a role in guiding our own uh, evolution? In I think it's going to be huge going forward. I think certainly the capabilities are there. We're already seeing with animals that, you know, we can, as I mentioned, put microchips in their brain and enhance certain capabilities. We can make them resistant to different diseases using genetic technologies. Uh, gene therapy has now been used to essentially give sight back to dogs who were born blind. And all of these techniques can be adapted to and moved over to the human world. In fact, some of them are already doing so. The, the gene that causes blindness in, in these dogs has a very close analog in humans, and in fact, there are already human trials of this gene therapy technique going on. So a lot of the technologies are sort of being used in a test case way in animals, and they're sort of there for the taking if we decide that we want to take advantage of them. I would guess that something like gene therapy, which has been sort of slowly advancing in humans and has the potential to cure a lot of diseases will be embraced relatively quickly as soon as we can show that it's safe. I think questions of cyborg technology and microchips and those sorts of interventions will be a bit harder for the public to accept, but I think some individuals will start using them. I mean, it's not something that necessarily has to be implemented on a society-wide level. And if there are people out there who decide they want a bionic eye or bionic brain, then we may start seeing some intrepid individuals pursuing those sorts of enhancements. Um, so in sort of reviewing all these different advances in biotechnology, the way the, the pros and the cons, the pluses and the minuses, on balance, do you think that most of the ones that have uh, been developed thus far, the benefits outweigh the drawbacks? That's a tough question. I don't know 
I don't know that I'd be willing to say the majority. I haven't. It's hard for me to quantify. One of the difficulties in reporting on a subject like this is that there are so many different applications and projects going on. I had to pick a few to focus on. I think there's definitely a good percentage of potential applications in which the benefits outweigh the risks. And I went out of my way to highlight those examples because I feel like they are often left out of the public dialogue. But that won't necessarily be true of every intervention. I mean, one of the most famous cases came several decades ago when scientists were trying to create, use genetic engineering to create a better pork product, a pig that grew faster, required less food, was had leaner meat, and this uh, genetic modification they made was a disaster for the pigs. They had all sorts of medical problems. They had horrible lives and just suffered tremendously. And there may be outcomes like that in which the animal welfare costs are simply not not worth it to us and. The trouble is sometimes it's hard to know before you do the experiment. On paper, these attempts to create these fast-growing pigs looked great, and scientists didn't necessarily anticipate that it would cause all this pain and suffering in the pigs. So as we go forward, I think we have to be prepared to reject some modifications if it becomes apparent that there are risks to the animals or to us or to the environment. But what I think is really important is that there will be cases in which the benefits do outweigh the risks. We're seeing them already. And I worry sometimes that a reflexive fear of biotechnology will keep us from embracing those applications. And in that case, I'm talking about things that scientists are working on now. Like, for instance, one really promising area of research is the genetic engineering of a chicken that's resistant to bird flu. And that would be a huge accomplishment, especially because flu evolves so quickly around vaccines. If we could create chickens that don't get the flu, it would not only save the lives of a huge number of chickens, but it would improve public health for humans as well. And so there are applications like that that I don't think we can afford to just reject out of hand because the benefits are so great. So what do you think uh, then is, is really kind of required then for the implementation of this biotechnology, all these uh, advances, really to go forward in a positive way possible? Well, I guess there's been a lot of talk, and I mentioned in my book, the regulatory systems, and I think a strong regulatory system is essential that we need to be reviewing each application on a case-by-case -case basis and make sure that it doesn't pose undue risk to humans, to animals, or to the environment. And I think doing that will help reassure the public that these applications are things we can trust. But at the same time, as we evaluate each potential intervention, I really hope people keep in mind that biotechnology is value neutral, that Genetic engineering in and of itself isn't inherently good or evil, that it all depends on how we employ it. And we could use it to do a lot of good for animals and for ourselves and for the world. Well, the book, again, is called Frankenstein's Cat, Cuddling Up to Biotech's Brave New Beast, and the author is Emily Anthes. Uh, Ms. Anthes, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. And thank you so much for having me. 
And you were just listening to Emily Anthes discussing the Frankenstein's cat. This is the Grox Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. It's not easy having yourself a good time. Player game. It's called the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic Frankenstein or the monster. So, for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they are more like Dr. Frankenstein or more like the monster, and a little reason why. Ms. Anthes, you ready to play the game? I think so. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Person number one, uh, Frankenstein or the monster. It's real estate mogul Donald Trump. Ooh. <laughs> probably the monster. Out of control, uh, lumbering around in the wilderness. No, no natural force could have created that. <laughs> uh, all right. Number two, uh, Frankenstein or the monster. It's uh, the pop star Lady Gaga. That's one. Uh, I was going to say the monster because she's such a creation. She's uh, again, doesn't seem like a natural force, but she's got a little Dr. Frankenstein in her, too, because she turned herself into a totally different creature. She used to just be this normal New York girl. So and maybe I have to go with Dr. Frankenstein. OK. Number three, though, it's famed evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. I might get in trouble on this one. I have to be careful. Um, I guess Dr. Frankenstein, I don't have a, about him personally to uh, evaluate his character, but he's certainly scholarly and curious, uh, same way okay. Dr. Frankenstein was, so Dr. Frankenstein. All right. Uh, how about number four? Uh, it's uh, the golfer Tiger Woods. Uh, I'd say the monster. He's very, sort of, seems very mechanical and rigid and looks like he might have been built in a super lab somewhere. Uh, all right, and finally, number five, it's the uh, former governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin. Well, that's obviously easily the monster. <laughs> I mean, I thought I was talking about Donald Trump uh, tramping around the wilderness, but that's that's Sarah Palin, so I'm not sure. She's she's terrorized a lot of a lot of good people, so I'd have to say the monster. <laughs> all right, well, uh, Ms. Anthes, I want to thank you for sticking around, playing our game, and again, talking about your book, Frankenstein's Cat, Cuddling Up to Biotech's Brave New Beast. Thank you so much for your time. Sure, thank you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.